From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, Episode 11, Gen Con Part 2. So welcome to The Spiel. This is another special Gen Con edition of The Spiel. We won't be following our normal format for this episode either. We've got a really special lineup with episode two here that we're dealing with uh, Gen Con in specific. But uh, we've got Rio Grande Games, uh, Extravaganza awesome. on tap this time. <laughs> uh, we play-tested what, five different Rio At least Grande five, games yeah. That are all either just have come out or are coming out this fall. Right. Um, and then after we go through our, our little uh, reviews of these games that we play tested, we've got an extra special treat for you listeners out there. Super awesome. <laughs> we have an interview with Jay Tummelson, the founder of Rio Grande Games himself. Um, he sat down and talked to us for about a half an hour. We asked him questions like the meaning of life. and <laughs> So, you know, stay tuned. <laughs> we have it all right here on the spiel. Um, but I think without further ado, we should just jump right in jump and, into the and games. get into the games. We we talked about all the other stuff in the last episode, so let's get down I, to the nitty-gritty. I think we spent at least three hours each day in Jay's booth. Easily, easily. He, he, he had tons of awesome <laughs> games, and it was, it was just great. It was like see. a gravitational pull. We just kept being <laughs> sucked back to the uh, Rio Grande booth to play more and games. For most, of, for most of these, we had our friend Jason. Yes, with Jason us. Ober. <laughs> and then on several games, we had some fellow Gen Con attendees, mm-hmm. you know, that we got to meet. And so we played most of these with a good four or five players, which was awesome because a lot of times we only get maybe three or four of us. So, yeah. So to play the games with their like the recommended full complement, right. rather than playing a well, this is a five player game, but we're going to have to try to play it with two. Right. None of that. We were playing the games as they were designed and meant to be played, which is awesome. Sweet. So the first one we sat down was... Times Square, which we've mentioned before on the spiel. It's funny how we're sort of starting to circle back. We've been doing it long enough. That was a news and notes a couple episodes ago, something like that. Games we were looking forward to, we're actually getting to play now. So this was one we got to sit down. It's in the two-player Cosmos Cosmos series. Um, It's a two-player game. takes about 20 to 30 minutes to play, and it's, of course... The good doctor himself, Dr. Rainer <laughs> Knizia, as the designer. Um, the, the quick description of this game that I came up with, and I'll see if Dave thinks it's valid or not, is if the game Duel and the game Heave Ho had a kid, it would be this game. <laughs> Absolutely, you nailed it. This, that's exactly what I think we even pitched it. As a possible, we thought the mechanic looked duelish. Mm-hmm. You know, when we at on our news and notes things, you know, several <laughs> episodes ago. And it kind of played out. It had that feel. Um, Theme-wise, it's 1920s, uh, what, New Year's Eve, right? Right, absolutely. And you're trying to, you're different bar owners, sort of speakeasy owners, and you're trying to attract... Uh, saucy Sal. Saucy Sue. And, and, saucy Sue, right, and, sorry. Uh, Hal. Uh, Handsome Hal. Handsome Hal. Handsome Hal to your uh, establishment. establishment. Or Champagne Charlie. Right. Is the other one. And what, dance, Dancing Deb. Dancing, exactly. Was the other one. And so you have several of these wooden figurines on a dual-like board um, that you move using um, cards. Maybe you talk about the card um, system right, it was, a little um, bit. Some of the figures, they were color-coded. like this. So there was a red figure, yellow, some green figures, and some gray. And all the cards were color-coded also. To the so, characters. To the characters. So when you play the cards of this color, you're actually going to be moving the figures of this color. Um, I'm trying to think. As you, they each had unique abilities yeah, each that were just has a sort of thing that they do insane. So you could either play the cards of this character and move them X number of spaces, or you could invoke their ability, which had cool things like you know lure a specific other character all the way across the board, mm-hmm. or 
trying to think what was the one that uh the dancing devs was that you could use red cards as other color as cards, other so color they became wild cards the only thing for this is um deb had to be nearer your side of the board between you mm -hmm. and champagne charlie or uh saucy sue saucy sue yeah. <laughs> the names are just fun to yeah. say <laughs> I think that was true with most of them. In order to influ in order to use their special abilities, you had to have pulled them over to luring them closer to your speakeasy than the other person's. Right. Um, but it was there was more depth there than I oh, was expecting. I was expecting absolutely. it to be for as quick a game as it was, especially. Um, I think I figured out one of the little hitches to the the way yeah, one of the particular ever. <laughs> handsome Hal is able to pull any one other figure to where he currently resides, um, which is a huge deal if you're able to get Handsome Hal all the way over to your side. He can start one by one pulling all the other figurines over, and uh, it makes it a lot easier to win the game yeah. <laughs> if you have him all the way ducked into the corner of uh, of your speakeasy. Yeah, I unfortunately let him uh, wander down there way too early <laughs> in the game and could never come back from that. But that was, again, that was just a beginner's learning the game kind of thing. It wasn't that I, you know... Yeah. I just had the dumb luck to go, oh, hey, you know, if I get him down here, that's a really good thing. And Dave figured it out one turn too late. <laughs> this was, it was like Duel on crack. I mean, yeah. in Duel, you're worrying about your one figure and where he's going to be. In this, you're trying to manipulate six, seven different figures. Mm -hmm. It's important to have control over all of them, but on any given turn, you're only going to get to move one with ex with very few exceptions. Mm-hmm. And there's fun interaction, like one what Saucy Sue has two bodyguards, and there are cards that allow you to move her bodyguards, but there are rules that constrain. Sue has to always be between her bodyguards. So you have to maintain that relationship no matter where you're moving them on the board. That that really made it cool too. So I would I'm really looking forward to picking that one up. I just I in that category, that dual, but even just a little more involved than dual kind of category. That's really. I'm, I just can't wait. To <laughs> you have you won't have one. to wait long because I already ordered it. <laughs> so we'll have that here within a couple of days. Awesome. <laughs> so um, what's next? Next was a game that we actually had on our news and notes. Just yeah, maybe even episode only nine, episode, episode nine. nine. A game called Timbuk Two. It's a three to five players, about sixty minutes by um, Dirk Hen. And what made this game interesting to us was the fact that it had a deductive reasoning type of thing, even though the basic it was a camel theme game, but it has deductive reasoning. And wow, did this game hurt! Oh my gosh, man, it <laughs> my was brain crazy. Leaking out my ears by it, the end of this. Yes, game. it was. It has you in control of six camels. I can't remember the quantity of camels. That. It's more than that, I think it's uh, ten. Okay, so you have a truckload of camels, and ABs. You know, it, they vary seven. for the amount of players. Seven for us. I think. Okay, <laughs> cool. So um, every every turn, basically, you're advancing your camels one one step further towards their goal, and you're it, you're a, like a trade caravan. So right. You're, you're kind of like each stop is kind of like an oasis. Is kind of what right. I took it to be. Exactly. So for each oasis, there's going to be X number of thieves that are going to hit this oasis and be stealing certain things from certain spaces at the oasis. And the cool thing is every turn, there's three cards that show you information, give you little nuggets of information on where the thieves will hit, what they might take, and from which camels they would take them from. You get a very quick flash of this information, not nearly enough to remember them. Mm -hmm. And so as you advance your camels to each oasis, you do so with a glimmer of information. So you're trying to place the camels in locations where the thieves won't hit. Or if you are forced to place a camel where you know a thief will yeah. be, hopefully you know he's going to be stealing stuff that that particular camel won't have. Right. So you, for example, you could say, well, one of my camel, my camel, num my camel letter A has salt and... Uh, pepper on it but I know that if I put him in slot number two that the thieves are only going to take wine so you you can say okay whew, I'm safe I'm there good. you know I know they're going to attack me but they don't I don't have what they want so I'm good 
or you could be in a position where crap, the only camera <laughs> I have left has wine, and I know he's going to get taken, but there's just nothing you can do nothing, about it. Right. You can get totally maneuvered into positions where you know where the bad thing is, but you just can't help but put a guy it, there anyway. It, it is. You you will each turn. You're going to know 60% of the information, mm-hmm. but it but – 40% of that flashes by you so fast, and there is no writing down. You don't get to write down the stuff, so you're just trying to commit yeah. all this to memory. We saw people doing that later, but that, <laughs> that's cheating. Yeah, no, I think it's much funner you know, with, without writing it down. Yeah. But the coolest thing, if that's not cool enough, mm-hmm. the coolest thing is that all of the commodities or the things that are stolen from the camels throughout the game – actually determine the value of those items that are not stolen by the end of the game right so the value of your salt at the end of the game is worth however many have been stolen exactly however many have been stolen crazy (laughs) so there's stuff you want to hold on to the stuff that's being stolen it it's just mind-boggling yeah there's a i mean there's a guarantee that at the end you know a certain amount of commodities are going to get stolen, so you want to try to skew it in the favor so that a lot of something that you were able to keep some of is left, and that's just, you know, right. aneurysm-inducing at certain <laughs> points because you're like, oh, I should know what to do, but I can't figure it out. It, it if was, you can't tell, we liked it. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a classic. Um, I went out and bought it immediately the next day. <laughs> yes. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. The only thing I'm not looking forward to is putting the little stickers on the wooden uh, camels. Yeah. Why couldn't they have, like, bur- wood burned them into right. the camels or something? The stickers are a little I'll, cheese. I'll wait till I've had a yeah. few shots of tequila and then <laughs> hit that. <laughs> Sticker up your camels. What are you doing, Dave? Well, I'm putting stickers on my camels. Hey, uh, do, do that in private, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, next game. Uh, we're we're running right through these. Uh, game number three on the list was uh, Masons. Um, two to four players, about 45 minutes to play. Good old Leo Colvini as the uh, designer, and he's come up with another another good one. Uh, it's a cool and colorful variation on the old dots game. I don't know whether people out there listening know the dots game by that name, but I bet some of oh, you know the game that I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, the dots game, the box game, whatever. Right. They have to know you it. You play it. I, we used to play it in elementary school, um, you know, around that age. You'd take just a blank piece of paper. I can even remember my mom doing this when, you know, you were bored out of your mind somewhere. You get a piece of paper out, and you just draw a little matrix of dots, a grid of dots on a piece of paper, and you take turns connecting the dots with lines until you've boxed in an area and then you colored in or put your initials or something. It, I mean, it's not just that game, but you can see how that game evolved into Mason's. Right. It's medieval kind of themed. You've got a board that's sort of reminiscent of a settler's kind of board and then right. you've got a kind of big hexagonal island with little dots and little connector um areas you know lines that are connecting them and you're going to play walls um you have to play a wall on every turn and then you play towers on either end of them and the colors of the towers are determined by a set of dice that you roll and that um there is just a little bank of different colorful wooden towers that you put on the board where it sort of overlaps with this dots game that i was explaining is the whole scoring system is based on when you've enclosed an area when you've made a city um, on the board, you have a series of action cards that allow you to score different configurations based on all, all sorts of different With variables. The size of the city, the colors of the towers. The types of, you can put houses. Of, exactly. Um, that's the other thing I guess I didn't explain is you put a wall down, you put two towers down by rolling the dice, and then there's a third die that you roll, or two other dice that you roll that determine the colors of the houses that you put on either side of the wall and that houses that are either inside the city when it's formed or outside the city can score points based on whether you have the card that says oh hey I'll score all the pink houses that are in the city or I have the card that'll score all the pink houses that are outside the city right so it's a definitely a wangling game to try to build the cities to fit the cards that will score you the most points I think the the other interesting thing about it was that the cities can swallow up each other. When you build another city next to one that's already completed, you have the option of keeping it separate 
or making it part of this Mongo exactly. city, which is exactly what Dave did. <laughs> I was cursing him the whole time. He like three quarters of the board was this Mongo huge city uh, that he just kept scoring bajillions of points by having these big cities. And I wanted the small ones because that's what I had. You had to score right. I think what was cool is that we found out early on that. Um, even though when somebody completes a city, everybody gets to score, you still have a little edge if you're the one that completes it because there's some things that you get to decide that make that a little more powerful. So just like the old dots game, we kind of found ourselves dancing around each other, (laughs) trying not to be the one who played the next to the last wall because as soon as you did that, that meant the next person was going to be able to complete a city and score. And it was much more powerful if you were the one that got to actually complete the city. A great balance, I thought, of, you know, there's some strategy, but you could definitely, it's not, you don't have to sit and pour over the board all the time when you're playing. You can right. have a conversation while you're playing, but yet it's it's got a, there is some depth to it. It's not just the old dots game with fancy pieces. Right, and the fact um, that there wasn't a regimented scoring. Mm-hmm. I mean, scoring could happen any number of times, you know, in any number of different ways and different possibilities with the types of cards you have. Usually, you know, there's like three scoring rounds mm-hmm. or you just score at the end well, of the I, game. I guess maybe it's worth saying or reiterating that everybody scores. Exactly. When the thing is not just, oh, hey, I'm the last one to complete, so I get to play my cards. Whenever a city's completed, everybody, everybody. gets a chance to play two cards out of their hand, which will score them points, which is, I think, really cool. Yeah, it was, it was very neat. This also, I immediately purchased. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll be adding plenty of stuff to our list. Oh my gosh, yeah! In the wrap up at the end, we'll we'll, we'll give you a, the, the sad litany of, <laughs> of our list ballooning. <laughs> it's a little crazy. So the uh, the next game we played was Altamare. It's a two to five player game. Lasts about an about at uh, sixty minutes, and the designer was Emmanuel. Ornella, Ornella. I think Ornella sounds good to me. Something like that, and we had the pleasure of having Jay um, teach us how to play this game. The rules for this game were lost, <laughs> so we couldn't teach ourselves. And so he sat down and gave us kind of the quick overview. It's basically a card-driven wheeling and dealing with an inventive but slightly confusing mechanic. Um, it was it definitely might be slightly confusing because we didn't have the rules to exactly. refer to. We're more than willing to admit that. Exactly, and and we did find like two or three things we were doing wrong, which we corrected at certain Mid-stream, portions throughout yeah. the game, which fixed any worries we had yeah. with it. And they weren't major. No, um, no. But but yeah, it was this game. I had no idea what to expect. It was not at all the kind of game I was expecting it to be. It was much more. Game is much more like a meta game. Yeah. A lot of the game takes place between the wheeling and dealing and trying to figure out what other people are collecting because you're basically you have commodity cards that you're trying to put into your stack that at the end will score you a bunch of points. You're not going to score many points during the play of the game, but you're trying to orchestrate this stack of commodities that you've been able to deliver to your different ports as sort of an ancient uh, era trading game if you're if you want to put right. a time period on it um but the really baffling thing is how all of each card determines how many that's the best how many lots you're able to bid for how many you're going to have to put onto your boat next round and what your hand limit's going to be for that turn and all the different other actions that are going to happen are there going to be pirates are you going to have to put uh Piles, there's a negative stack that you have to put in that are going to count as minus points at the end. So everything is determined by the card that you played last time. It was really right. hard to wrap my brain around it, but that's a compliment because it's such Absolutely. an interesting and, and not completely unique, but very, very interesting variation on yeah. on. I love games. that you would load two or three cards in one turn and then just sit there and try, okay, now I have to load these. But well, which one am I going to put on top out of these three? Because mm-hmm. the top one on the stack, just like you said, is going to determine your entire next. How many cards can I have at the beginning of my next hand based on this? Yes. How many things will I get to load? Will I be attacked by the pirates? Will I actually ever get to draw another card? Yeah. Will I get any gold? All based on the things that you loaded in the previous turn. Mm-hmm. 
awesome. On top of the fact that, I mean, you're never you're never going to be in a situation where you have all of the commodity that you need to score the points. It's a little bit like Bonanza in that there's a limited number of each commodity, and having a certain number of each of the commodities gives you a certain number of points. So if you only have one, it counts as one point. If you have three, then it counts as two points, and so on and so forth. And they're, it's different for each commodity. Right. So you have to kind of set yourself up on the hope that you can wheel and deal with people by the time it gets around to you. I know I need three. I have one gem. Somehow, some way, I got to come up with two more gems. And I think there's five or six of those commodities, and you don't get to look in your stack. Yeah. So you have to remember, you know what? I've put, I think there's three potteries in there. Yeah. So if I can just get two more, because anything past the max is a waste. Yeah, you, you don't know, need it. If, you, if the max score is like you know 10 for five pottery, and you put in the six pottery, that's worth nothing. You've just wasted you know a card yeah. that you've loaded. <laughs> but... A very cool game. Uh, the other thing is that it encourages you to trade because the there's a little system of you get more victory points for trading more times with more people. So unlike other trading games where it, they might be similar up to the point that we've described, but you get to a point in the game where like, I'm not trading with anybody. I like what I've got. There's actually a mechanic built into the game that there's actually a great deal of incentive right. to want to trade because though the number of times you've trade, you're going to get an extra number of points at the end. And I thought that was actually a game that, that actually sort of shoves you to have to interact exactly. with other people is awesome. If you're going to be that one stick in the mud, you're going to see people, <laughs> other people, everybody else accumulating victory points for yeah. trading, and you're just going to be left out. Yep, yep. <laughs> Um, and I guess lastly, perhaps Arrgh. we couldn't, couldn't get out of the Rio Grande uh, booth without playing a pirate game, of course. And the last game that we, we sat down and gave a really good thorough look over was uh, Rum and Pirates. Uh, she be a fine game. Uh, two to five players, 60 minutes. Gosh, I'd say it even played less than that, although... I guess maybe it, it had a potential to I go. Guess maybe that's accurate. Stefan Feld is the uh, designer. Um, you wind your pirates, little plastic pirate figurines, through streets of some sort of uh, fantasy set, you know, mythical pirate island setting uh, to gather booty and bonuses. There's a wacky mechanic and fast gameplay with a fun dice off at the end of each round of play that doesn't ruin the game, in my opinion, with too much luck. Um, no, this as soon as I saw the dice, I, w I was a little worried because what this game, how it was led on to be that this game was going to play, and this was the most creative, cool use of dice. Yeah, it was just really neat. Yeah, so you're you're trying to wend your your pirates through to these intersections in the city, which each intersection has a little icon, and each icon allows you to do a certain thing: collect a treasure. Uh, collect a little reroll token, which can come into play in the dice off. Right. Uh, gain an extra pirate from your collection, so you'll have more pirates to put out. And after all the pirates are put out on the board, then there's this little dice off that will determine how many extra victory points. There are a certain number of victory points set aside for this dice off ex on the side. You're actually fighting to become one of only three people who are actually going to have a place to sleep on the ship right. when you come back from the town. <laughs> There's what, the bunk, <laughs> the deck, and the bed or something, something like that. Right. And the bed is worth the most, the bunk and the, uh, the other but ones the, are less. On the board, you're actually moving the captain. Yes. But you're forced to follow the captain. So as you move the captain from intersection to intersection, you fill up behind him a number of your pirates equal to the number of spaces that were in that street. So they're just sort of drunk and they're stumbling just to the next you know, place that the captain happens to you, go. You want to move to all kinds of places, and there's no you're not limited. On your turn, you can move anywhere that you can afford to move as far as gold and as far as the number of pirates. Yeah, so if there are five spaces, you have to have five physically, five exactly. pirates to fill up those spaces in between. And then what Stephen was saying, at the end of the turn, um, any pirates left over, you're actually moving to the ship in this dice off to to find out who can actually get a place to sleep and this is where the luck of rolling the dice is offset with you have complete control over how many pirates you would like to save for this little end dice off and the more pirates you have the better chance you have of actually getting a place to sleep and of course the less pirates also that you have to put on the board exactly so it's a really nice a great balance, balance. Of, of you know you can throw all your effort into winning the dice off but there's a trade-off of 
you know, the board simply. And I, I love that you don't play. start the game with all your pirates. That's one of really one cool. of the intersections is like the pirate unemployment office, you know, where you get to actually go and get extra pirates. You don't start off with your full complement. And I know some people in our game were able to go bam, 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 and yeah. get those extra pirates. That was a huge advantage. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I could never get, by the time I got control of the captain, I was on the wrong side of the board, and I could not get recruits. <laughs> so I was always just a few pirates shy. Yeah. But the goober, too. I mean, oh, yeah. what? Like awesome. 30, 40, 50 little plastic pirate. And the board, I forgot. The board is, the board um, really is, is modular. modular. So there's double-sided and modular. It's going to change every single time. So you just can wrap around to the sides of the board. You can wrap yep. around to other sides. So what so. I mentioned about being hosed out of that one side of the board was really no big deal. The next time you play the game, those would be spread out. It just so happened to be in this one game. All the recruitment places were in one little blob, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So I I like this a lot. I liked it even. I thought after playing maybe one round, I'm like, I'm not so sure about this, but I just hadn't quite. I didn't get it exactly. Yet. And then the light bulb went on the second time through of putting the pirates down because I just wasn't understanding how what I was doing on the board was going to affect the scoring and other things like that. And then from that point on, I just thought it was really really interesting and really cool it was i can't wait to add this i mean there's not a game of those five that i played that i wouldn't want to own at some point i thought they were all really interesting um, unique in one way or another absolutely and justify a spot on my shelf for any number of reasons most of which being fun <laughs> being the first <laughs> right. first uh, and always right. uh best judge of any game we i think we had fun with every single one of these games absolutely <laughs> i think uh the other two games we should mention just briefly um, that we didn't get a chance to play but are worthy of, of note are right. uh, Thurn and Taxus, which just won just the, won the uh, Spiel Spiel de Jar, de Jar. Yeah. Um, for 2006. Six. Um, we uh, Dave already owns it, which is one of the reasons we justified not playing it at Gen Con was, well, we have it, so we didn't need to sit down and take up our valuable playtest time <laughs> with a game we already had in the collection. Um but we're really looking forward to playing that one. We know our friend Jason got to sit down and play, and he gave it a really good thumbs up. So, And that's comparing it to other games that came out this year, stuff like Kalos. Yeah, which, which we bar played set pretty and, high. Yeah, because that game just rocked. And if this can compete with something like that, yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> um, and the other one, uh, Friedman Freeze, the guy who did Fearsome Floors, has another one of his wacky, I love the art, Art um, is awesome. In his games called Funny Friends. Dave wasn't so, he was a little lukewarm on this one. I think of, that was one of the reasons I wanted to play test it, was to see if you turned your mind around. Right. Because you were like, meh, I don't know. And then we actually sit down and to say, you know, this was actually really pretty cool. It actually looked, when I, when I got to look at the components and how the game was going to play out, it, it surprised me. you got to love his artwork and yeah. just the way that his games are just left of center. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, they're always just totally whacked out. Um, but those definitely are worth checking out. Um, even though we didn't get to play test them, I would I would look into them, and we'll include uh, links to those in our show notes as well on our website, which of course is thespiel.net. Yes. <laughs> well, I think it's time that uh, we don't tease the listeners anymore. We get right to the the Absolutely. big treat for this episode, which is our interview with uh, Mr. Jay Tummelson. Um, needs really no introduction other than that he's the founder and and uh, one of the reasons probably that we are even doing this podcast today without a doubt because of the the just renaissance of those euro style games and, and our interest in those style games we certainly have Jay to thank for uh, in large part for our love of those kinds of games so it was a treat for us to get down and and dirty and listen to what he had to say about games from all kinds of angles so i think you'll enjoy this interview let's let's let him do the talking awesome so we are here at gen con 2006 this is a special uh episode of the spiel and we have a very special guest on this episode we have mr jay tummelson uh 
owner of uh, Rio Grande Games, and um, we'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us here on the Spiel. And, and my pleasure, glad let to us, be here. Let us interview you. So we'll just we'll just jump right into it and, and fire jump away right here. in. I'll try to answer as best I can. <laughs> so um, we consider you to be one of the chief architects of the increased popularity of Euro-style games here in the United States. First with uh, Settlers of Catan at Mayfair, and then with the countless great titles on your own at Rio Grande Games. Um, do you see yourself in those terms at all? I try not to. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, obviously, uh, I think that Rio Grande Games has had uh, you know, a pretty nice impact in terms of making these great games available to people in the United States. That was the mission when I started the company and obviously you know sales and growth of of the number of games being sold in this genre suggests that it has been successful and that's that's really what what pleases me is to see a lot of people finding these games and enjoying these games and playing these games that's, that's why I started the company and so I'm very pleased with the fact that I see more and more people playing these games because and enjoying them. That's really what's important. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it, there seem to be, I don't know whether imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but it seems like there are lots of other companies that are sort of using your success as a model and are maybe, you know, entering into, you know, trying to introduce people to other Euro games that, that maybe have... Not, that aren't on your agenda to, to right. bring Well, there's certainly well. an awful lot of games out there uh, available, you know, in the in the Euro-style games, and uh, certainly more than I can or am willing to 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 publish. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's I think the the more people that play them, the larger the marker becomes, and the more you know interesting it's going to be for other players. And you know, and I wouldn't call them copycats because most of the 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 newer companies, if you want to call that, that are that are doing Euro style games are doing uh, it differently than I am. Uh, and I think that's what makes success. I don't think you find success by copying what someone else has done. I think you find success by doing what works for you. Uh, so although some other companies are bringing in Euro-style games, they're doing it with a different you know, way or a different platform or with a different goal in mind. And that's what makes several different companies work because we're not trying to do the same things. We're doing similar things or doing, uh, we're doing things with Euro games but doing it in different ways. And that's why several companies can be successful side by side. Awesome. Um, I have a question, a little more personal. Um, prior to your days with Mayfair, I'm just wondering if you had an interest, if you knew that you would be having an gaming as a career. Not really. Um, I spent most of my adult life, if you call me an adult, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, in the computer in industry. Oh, okay. Um, and when I and I just decided uh, about 10, 11 years ago that. I wanted to kind of retire from that and do something else and kind of was trying to pick between, believe it or not, becoming a ski instructor and doing something in the game industry wow. because I had <laughs> kind of enjoyed playing games through most of my life and thought, well, that could be fun too and got an opportunity to uh, work with Mayfair. so. I abandoned skiing at least for the moment. Well, and, we're certainly glad you did. <laughs> and uh, so am I. Uh, and even then, I didn't really know exactly what to expect. But it was when I first started with Mayfair that I discovered the Euro-style games and thought, well, gee, you know, we ought to do these in English. And that resulted with sort of the first set of games, which included Settlers. Right, um, and then unfortunately, Mayfair had some financial problems. So, I decided, well, I still like doing this, uh, and if I can't do it here, I'll just do it on my own. So I went off and founded Real Grande Games and kept doing <laughs> what I had found I enjoyed doing. But when I when I left my other job, I had no clue that you know, eleven years down the road I'd be 
doing wow. this at all. You know. That's great. So, if you don't mind, walk us through briefly the the process that that you go through at Rio Grande Games from the time that you find a game that you're interested in, a Euro-style game, um, through its production, um, and then finally to the store shelf. So from, you know, you what, what... You sure you want to know this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually. <laughs> well, most of the games I do, uh, I find, you know, at one of the German publishers. I meet with them anywhere from two to four times a year, you know, certainly at Nuremberg and Essen, but more importantly, at other times in the year, I schedule a trip to Germany. And like I want to tell people, instead of visiting the castles, I visit the game companies. <laughs> and I usually spend a day with each company. And they show me the games they're working on for the next asset or the next Nuremberg or whatever. Uh, you know, they, I look at the prototypes or the samples or whatever they have. And then basically, if it's a game, I think... I want to add to my line. I say, I'd like to add this to my line. Um, usually within a week or two, uh, I'll get you know a proposal from them in terms of pricing, how much it's going to cost. Uh, and I either say yay or nay. And if I say yes, then sometime later, uh, as they get close to production, they send me, usually again by email, uh, the, the game files, the rules, the, the box, if there's any text on cards or anything like that. They send me those you know, German files. I translate them to English, send them back, and then sometime later, we print. And then as soon as they're printed, I put them in a, a big uh, container and send them to the United States and sell them. <laughs> how, how short or long is the, is the life cycle from that, those meetings to production, or is it, does it vary a lot from It game varies to game? a lot, you know, I mean, sometimes it could be six or eight months. Sometimes it could be um, a month. I mean, there's been some that have been wow, very, very fast. close. I find out about a game, maybe not even when I'm in Germany, and I find out somebody's doing it, uh, and it's a game I think I'm interested in, so I might call them up and say, hey, I understand you're doing such <laughs> and such a game. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're printing next week. I said, well, can we do English? Uh, well, can you translate tomorrow? Uh, <laughs> wow. you know, we've ordered 5,000 games, but we could probably do a couple thousand in English for you or something like that. So I've had one or two that actually went that quickly. But usually it's more, it's, it's a little bit longer, a couple of months. Yeah. Uh, kind of related with that, are there any games that you've had to pull the plug on like midway through the process that you've changed your mind about no. for some reason? Uh and that would really be unfair. If I once I make a commitment with a company, you know, I, I feel I have to go through it. But whether but there were also none I wanted to. I mean, cool. So, um, how often, if ever, do you have to retool a game because of perhaps like cultural differences between Europe and America, if at all? I don't think I ever have. Uh, I mean, I. Obviously, I translate it, and there's a fair amount of editing to make it hopefully more natural to the English language. Uh, but rarely do I have to, I'm trying to think if I ever have, uh, change any, anything. Uh, certainly nothing is substantial in the game. Okay. Um, we were, th I guess. I mean, for example, recently, I, and now I'm distributing a game called Funny Friends from, uh, from oh, 2 Oh, Friedman. And there were some of the cards that were changed, uh, I think, six or eight. Uh, most of them were just, you know, concepts that were funny in Germany but wouldn't be funny here. You know, if there was... The, the some, language barrier. Well, not so much that. Just, you know, there's, one of them was something to do with a soccer game, which oh. soccer's not that popular, yeah. so I switched it to baseball, that kind of thing. But, okay. But that's just really changing a card or two. And, <laughs> and I think that's the first time I've ever done anything like that even. Hmm. Well, most of the time, I mean, that's a game where the cards really are, are more culture-based or can be. Mm -hmm. You know, most games, the cards are sort of more, gay, more focused on the game or fa focused on the theme, and the theme being, you know, ancient Egypt or, right. or you know, the turn in taxes. So they're, they're just the cities. You know, I suppose I could have changed the whole game and made it Pony Express or something. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I don't see a need to do that because... You know, the theme works 
wherever you are. I think the only one that leapt out at us was uh, Aladdin's Dragons because it had a life before as what was a key was a key town or oh, something. Well, I didn't know whether that had. Well, I was not as, involved in that. I mean, essentially, Hans of Gluck chose to take the previous okay. game. For those of you who didn't believe we are actually at Gen Con, you know now. At <laughs> uh, any rate, uh, no, basically, uh, Baron Brunhofer and Hans and Gluck saw the game and decided he wanted to do the game. So he actually. So that, that he, process had taken that place. That whole process you was done by him. Yeah, okay. I, I rarely, uh, occasionally, I'm involved early enough in the process that I've seen the original prototype. But often I'm not. Often I don't see the game until it's already gone through some development stages at the German publisher, uh, and then they go, and here it is. Mm. Uh, more often than not, I may have seen games with Hans of Gluck, you know, very early in the process, and then as it gets closer, you know, he'll call me and say, well, we finally decided to do this game, and we've decided on this is the theme. Oh, that sounds nice. And, <laughs> and, and so it goes that way. But. Okay. Um, I was just wondering, since you have obviously a working relationship with some of the best designers in the world, have you ever felt an urge to start designing games yourself? Never. <laughs> um, that was quick. <laughs> well, you know, and, and I get that question a lot, so I guess I'm, I'm ready to answer it. Uh, I think there's a feeling maybe with people who aren't game designers that uh, game designing is easy or everybody has a game inside them just waiting to right. come out. Uh, I've worked enough with game designers to know that game designing is not easy. Uh, it's also something that I don't think I could be good at it, but even if I think I could be good, I don't have any game designs struggling to be coming out. Uh, I don't think I'd be a good game designer and frankly don't want to be. I'm quite comfortable being a publisher and that takes up enough of my time oh. that uh, <laughs> I, I don't have a particular desire to, to design a game. It's a lot of work, a lot of playtesting, a lot of uh, you know, paying attention to what other people say about what works and what doesn't work and changing. Uh, the closest I get is uh, you know, on a couple of, of games that I've worked on my own that I'm self-publishing, not with a German publisher, I may do something that might be called development, you know, which uh. means, gee, uh, could you change this? Or <laughs> I'm not sure I like the way that works. Uh, uh, and then sometimes okay. they do, and sometimes they. I say, imagine me I'm that. Wrong. Imagine that carries a little bit of weight now. Um, <laughs> not necessarily. You know, I, I don't know that my ideas are always good. Uh, I just, you know, I have them and I offer them, and sometimes they're accepted, and sometimes they convince me that that would be really silly to do that. <laughs> so it's a conversation. It's not, gee, I'm the publisher, so do it my way. Uh, I mean, it's it's a little bit different. I mean, when you work with uh, most of the German publishers, they do a lot of development and the designers expect there to be a lot of development. Um, I don't have the time, frankly, to do a lot of development, so I try to pick games that I think are done. Right. And then, so they don't need a lot of, uh, of my help. <laughs> Which is good, because I'm not sure I can give much. Uh, so, you know, I, when I'm doing a game on my own, you know, not in conjunction with a German publisher, I try to pick games that I think are pretty much ready when I see them. You know, for example, I'm doing uh, uh, a two-player version of Medici uh -huh. uh, for Essen called Medici versus Strozzi. And uh, if you want to talk about games that can happen fast, I saw the game at Origins and we'll be publishing it at Essen. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, um, but I had in the process of reprinting Medici with some new artwork, and as soon as I saw the two-player game, I thought, well, it might be more interesting to do that first because it's new. Right. And since I already had the artwork started for Medici and sort of it was an immediate choice that whatever artwork I would do, I would share. So there'll be sort of the obvious oh, connection. That's great. So I just took the artist and I kind of said, well, let's work on this first so we can get it out by Essen and then the Medici reprint will follow. Cool. But I, I couldn't have done that if I didn't think the game was done. If I needed several months to develop it, then 
I would have had to take several months to develop it. <laughs> so even though you don't necessarily have an interest in designing games, working with these German publishers and the German designers, have they changed or um, have you has your concept of what makes a good game changed from having this working relationship with uh, the people overseas? Has what I think a good game changed? Yeah. yeah. Have you learned or have they taught you other ways to think about you know, what makes a good game? Well, I think games are constantly evolving and changing and new ideas come. Uh, I don't know that I had a concrete concept of what a good game is. As far as I'm concerned, a good game is one that people enjoy playing and there is no one game that, sure. that works for and in fact sure. there's a lot of games that I don't enjoy playing that other people do so those are good games too <laughs> uh, so I, I think if anything I've learned that there's just lots of things that work and and also lots of things that work for different people and one of the things that I try to do is offer a variety you know, lots of different games. Uh, so I don't expect everyone to like every one of my games. Good thing, because it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what I hope I do is I give enough variety so that I can please at least some of the people some of the time. Yeah. And, and, and that's my goal, is if I do a lot of different games, then I'm going to... You're going to have know, a wider find, audience. I'll, I'll get a wider audience. And... and 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 give people more options. You know, some companies are very successful by focusing on certain kinds of games, and that's that's an approach that can be very successful. Mine has been, let's do a lot, of, a large variety of games, and then I'm offering different games to different people who like different things. In a way, that kind of it leads right into you it, almost answered it, the next. It does. You basically answered my next question. Oh, good. I'll take a break. We, we were going to ask you what you would say defines a Rio Grande game. In other words, what sets them apart from all the other choices on the shelf? And obviously variety and games that people just enjoy playing. Is there anything else? Well, I like to think that the quality, uh, one of the reasons that I, I have hooked up with the German publishers is because I think the quality of the graphics, the quality of the components, uh, not just the design, but I mean design is important too. Right. Uh, the games have a high level of replayability. Uh, they are very approachable. For the most part, the rules are simple, but you know, as I say, mastering the game is tough. <laughs> right. uh, but really, I think the important thing is that people, when they open the box and they look at the components, they think, hey, look, I've got something that I I hope I like the way the game plays because I want to touch it and play with it often. That, that just the feel of the components and the and the and that attracts people to the game, and then hopefully the design and the the, the enjoyment of playing will want will make them come back as well. But right. I know a lot of the games. You know, I, 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 at least when I play them, I open the game and I'm like, I hope I like this game because it sure looks like fun and the parts look interesting and I looks like I want to move these around on the board because they have a nice feel. That's exactly what Steven and I do. Every time we open a new Real Grande game, it's oh, just ogle over all the new stuff. <laughs> and that's really, uh, you know, uh, a statement of what the German. Uh, publishers have done because they really do that. I wish I could get credit for it, but <laughs> they make the graphics choices. They make the the design choices on what components are inside the box, and I just change the text from German to English. So perhaps on a, a more personal note, what games come off of your shelf the most at home with your friends and family? What games I like best? Yeah. Um, I like the little bit deeper games, so uh, I still find Puerto Rico, uh, oh, El Grande, Kalis, awesome. <laughs> uh, although it's a new game, mm. and Power Grid. Those are probably my top four mm. uh, for <laughs> playing. Uh, if you know, of course, that's in you know when I'm seriously playing or whatever. Right. Uh, I still, uh, in terms of a lighter game, I like a, a game of Lost Cities or Balloon Cup. Yeah, you know, for I a love two-player game. I love both of those. <laughs> Um, but, you know, if I have an opportunity, you know, to play a game when I'm at Origins or Gen Con uh, in the evening when mm -hmm. I'm relaxing, then I'll try to pull out one of those four. <laughs> awesome. That, and my question is, hooks right up with that. Are there any types, games or types of games you don't enjoy or just won't play? 
I'm not really fond of party games, although I've made a few because I know other people like them. Uh, they're just not a game I like. I'm not fond of trivia games. Um, beyond that, um, you know, I, I like trying different games and uh, playing different kinds of games. I'm not very good at abstract games, but I'll play them from time <laughs> to time because I kind of enjoy... In, in the end, I enjoy playing games with people. And exactly. People sit down to a game that I think I'm not going to like... Uh, I'm likely to sit down with it, and I'll probably have a good time because of the social interaction, which is, I right. think, what games are all about. And <laughs> if it's not my favorite game, I still will have fun because of the people interaction. Exactly. <laughs> so um, it's uh, shameless plug time for you. So <laughs> give our listeners the scoop on any of your new and upcoming games. In other words, what exactly should we be drooling over in the near future? drooling over well let's see well we're finally going to uh, have uh, Gloria Monday out uh, that'll the be James probably in the next month we're looking uh, forward to that after one. this long long wait and uh, a number of problems and most of them caused by me <laughs> uh, but we're finally going to have that out we've got for the power grid fans uh, a new expansion uh, coming out uh, this fall mm. uh, two new maps Benelux and Central Europe well, that'll be with fun. some neat new ways to play power grid um what else is coming on uh for essen i'm i've also reprinted taj mahal oh uh, that's fun essentially the basic game but a little bit different box uh but it'll be played the same way and be the same great fun uh i'm hoping to do i've i've just printed uh topo which is a reiner knizia game it's a uh, sort of a speed, a speed game. It's a speed game. Again, a game that I won't enjoy playing a lot, but <laughs> yeah, but yeah. It, a lot of people enjoy playing it, and <laughs> and that's what's important. Uh, in fact, I managed to play a game with uh, uh, a young a young girl at the convention last week. Uh, her parents asked me to teach her, so I taught her, and mm-hmm. she promptly beat me very badly in Topo. I think the final score was a hundred and something to thirty or something like that. So it, it, it guarantees you that it's not a game yeah. that I. Uh, Dave doesn't I'm very good the, at the speed games when I'm playing either for the same reason. Um, I'm working on a game called If Wishes Were Fishes by some American designers, which I hope to have out in October. Hmm. Uh, that's a nice little fun game, um, and probably about four or five other games that I can't talk about because sure they sure they are. Co-productions with German publishers, and they're withholding information until later. Uh, I can say that, uh, as a lot of people know, I have a, a pre-production copy of Shogun here, which is the mm. rethemed uh, Wallenstein, and that will be out probably within a month. Uh, well, I've been we showing look, people we really here, looking forward and to that everybody's one. pretty excited about what it looks like already, so we're pretty excited about that one. Well, there's a lot to drool over. <laughs> Exactly. So are there any newer surprising directions that you would like to see Rio Grande take in the future? Different from what you're doing now? Uh, I'm still evolving. Uh, as you know, um, sort of I've been sneaking in to doing sort of my own titles right. uh, over the last you know, three or four years. It kind of started by accident when some of the titles I've done went out of print in Germany, but I wanted to reprint them for my market. And so I did the only thing I could think of doing. I went back to the designer and said, hey, you know, I'd like to keep the game in print, but the German publisher doesn't want to. Can I have the license? And they would say yes. And I said, as long as I'm going to be doing it, can I have the German license too? Ah. Because, (laughs) you know, even if it's you know, an old German game, there's probably a few Germans that still want to buy it. Right. And so as a result, I've got several games where I've got German and English, or you know, ah. because of, of my Canadian customers, I try to add French when I can. And so those include uh, titles like Samurai and Ricochet Robots, and Tikal and Torres. Oh, great uh, games. Deserve and to come back. Really nice <laughs> games. And I really had never planned to sort of do it that way, but... I wanted to keep the games in print, and that was the only way I could do it. Obviously, I've moved from there to doing some of my own titles because it's, I guess, a short step. Right. Uh, and now I'm 
finding that what I did to the German publishers I've, is being done to me. <laughs> As I do some of these titles, I'm being approached by companies in other countries wanting to do local language versions. Ah. So I'm doing multilingual versions or I'm doing uh, you know, sort of co-productions uh, with people in other countries of titles that now I have the license for and so I'm <laughs> licensing them out. So That's great. Exactly. So, so it is totally kind of a personal circle. thing. Again, not something that I said, well, here's my mission, here's my plan, here's what I'm going to do, but some things that came as a result of my basic mission and kind of expanding it, and uh, they're the natural, they're, they're really the natural step. When you make a good game, uh, if it's good enough, whatever that means, uh, there's going to be some other people who want it, exactly. and if there's enough desire for it, then you're going to get a co-production or something like that. Cool. Well, lastly here, one final question. Thanks again so much for, no, my for your time. Um, one of our main goals here at the Spiel is to show how games are at their best when they become vehicles for human interaction. We end each show by saying whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win. You just have to play. It, to us, it seems like Rio Grande takes this philosophy to heart. Uh, if Thank you. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Very welcome. Uh, it's well-deserved. Uh, if Rio Grande had a motto, what would it be? Would it be something along those lines, or what would it... Well, my mission, as stated from the very beginning, was to bring good family strategy games to the people who speak English. I mean, essentially, it's people in this country, but of course, it goes beyond this country. Uh, when I started the company, I saw really good family strategy games in Germany, and I didn't see so many here. And so, my goal was to bring them here, and I think I've done that. Absolutely. And, and <laughs> space, when I yes. say family strategy game, it's a game that is fun to play. Not that people shouldn't try to win, but they should just have fun playing the game, and I hope people are doing that. Yeah, I think. Well, I think you've cast your net very wide with the variety that that you offer, and you come up with gold so often that it's it's scary. That I don't think I think I'm not alone in saying, Dave. Don't you? That I don't think I've ever played a bad Rio Grande game, a game that I can don't I make a suggestion enjoy. or two? <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, Ouch. We want to make sure and congratulate you on uh, Third and Taxi's recent Spiel de Jar. Awesome. Well, thank you. I. You know, again, uh, I had very little to do with, with, uh, you know, the certainly nothing to do with design or development. I just, uh, you know, Baron showed me the game, and I said, "Sure, I'll do that in English." <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, it's a feather in your cap. It can't can't hurt, right? <laughs> no, no, it, it doesn't. It doesn't hurt at all. It doesn't hurt at all. Well, thank thank you so much, Jay. My um, pleasure. We'll look forward to hearing from you maybe uh, down the road, maybe next Gen Con, or if not, if not before. <laughs> That's for sure. Thanks again for all you do. So there you have it, uh, fearless listeners. Uh, there's our first interview. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed interviewing uh, Mr. Tummelson. Thanks again to Jay. He was a, a, a sport for putting up with our silly was questions. Awesome. And just thanks for taking the time to, to talk to us. I would like to also add a special thanks. Jay took a few minutes of his time out to um, look at one of my game designs that I've been working on. He gave me a lot of good it's input, really cool. and it was just great. <laughs> yeah, he even turned you on to a different company that he thought it might fit right. better with, which he didn't have to go out of his way to do that right. at all. And that's just the kind of guy he is. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> so before we put a lid on Gen Con here for this year, um, parting shots. We got one last chance. If there are things we forgot about that we just absolutely want to make sure we mention, haul forth. We got a couple minutes here before the end of the show. Um, is Are there any things that you want to make sure – uh, you say about Gen Con before we, we get back to the regular routine here on the Spiel. Uh, one thing I'll add real quick is we learned an interesting piece of information, a piece of news, that unfortunately Eagle Games has gone out of business um, just barely a week or two ago. The good news is that somebody has purchased the rights to their games 
who that company is, we are not sure of yet. As soon as we find out, uh, we'll let you guys a know. Multitude of games. Exactly, too, could so very well be. The good news for us is that they're the games that were good will probably be around. They won't be published by Eagle, sadly, but at least the games that were very enjoyable will probably come back under some other new game company exactly. umbrella. Probably answers we've all been wondering where um, Pirates oh, yeah. has been, and that probably helps <laughs> answer that question. So, <laughs> And the bootleggers uh, game Ex- that's actually exactly. the right set of cards but, and trucks. <laughs> so hopefully we'll, we'll find out in a few weeks, and as soon as we know, we will let you know. Definitely. What about you, Stephen? Um, one sort of random bit of Gen Con trivia. There was another. We were talking about non-game related places right. in the in the exhibition hall. McFarland Publishing uh, had a booth. I just thought it was amazingly cool. They had great books on all kinds of genre literature, literary criticism, film, television, and popular culture. Uh, hardback, trade paperback books. Really interesting titles. I ended up picking up. A book that was a filmography on every stop motion movie ever made. It's like wow. an encyclopedia of stop motion films. Just awesome. And I also bought a book on Elvis movies and popular culture just because it looked <laughs> really cool. And it was a very affordable price. I'll put a link to them in the show notes. Okay. And they're definitely worth mentioning. Cool. Um, back to you. What what next on your... I, I think we teased everybody with those fan films, the movies oh, at Gen right, Con, but we right. never turned them on to some of the... The, the titles so they can go out and hunt for these themselves. Mm-hmm. So I have to go ahead if you've got Yeah, the... I've got the, the list of the three that really caught our attention. Uh, Gamers is one that was done by a group in California, and they actually had some sort of B-list level celebrities in it. It uh, looks hilarious. I have a screener of that, so uh, look for a review sometime soon. There's another one called The Gamers Dorkness Rising, <laughs> which uh, it looks like a hoot. And then... Uh, there must be something about dork in the title because another game, another game film, different group of people all together did a parody of the Lord of the Rings called Dork of the Rings. Oh, that's uh, awesome. We met the guy who was playing, I can't remember. He played Gandalf, Gand- Gandalf, I believe. Gandork or whatever the heck his name is uh, in there. But uh, those are the three titles, and we'll include um, links again. Oh, I can't. I would definitely have to see all those. Yeah, those look <laughs> like a hoot. Um, I guess my, one of my last things would be I got this, I forgot to mention this wacky little game that I got that's all played on bookmarks. It's called Werehan Clash Clash at Sigilus. Horrible title. Wow. But it's some sort of little fantasy type novel thing, but it's a miniature style battle game. There are battlefields in the book and bookmarks with like your army cards that you like slide up and down in the book it's the wackiest mechanic i have ever seen in my life oh i can't wait it to was review $5, that dollars and i was like it won some award at origins which is another game convention i was like heck for 5 bucks sign me up let's I, give it a shot how many games do you get to play with a bookmark in a book that's really cool that um, is wacky yeah I, <laughs> I don't even know what to say about it other than it's so weird that how could you not buy it exactly <laughs> Back to you. Um, I think we should. Uh, I think we forgot to mention a couple. Um, there was a couple artists that yes. um, we got to talk we to. We made some good contacts. Made some great contacts with a couple people who were um, some art. They had some art that we were very interested in, and they were also very interested in the spiel. And yeah. we didn't get a chance to mention them by name. Right. So I think this would be a great time to do that. Yeah, uh, there were two artists in particular who said they listened to a lot of podcasts. There's Veronica Jones. Who, hello, Veronica, if you're listening, uh, we liked your art and thanks for uh, giving us a giving us a listen. Um, and uh, Mark Murphy, who does WeWickeds.com, um, we bought some of his art and he was just a hoot to talk to and very supportive and and interesting and absolutely check, check his stuff out as well. And then Dave, you also had a nice little conversation with. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get the fellow's I, name. Yeah, I'm sorry. I apologize. He didn't get a business card, but he was the administrator or founder of the Board Game Designers Forum. Right. Um, which is, oh, is it bggdf.com? Exactly. Um, and it looks like a great site if you're interested in board game design. design at all and very open to new people who are interested in understanding what it takes to design a board game absolutely that would totally be a place to check out and maybe we'll we hope to hear from him in the future it might be cool to have an interview with him or something down the line yep that'd be great um i think 
Um, oh, the one last thing. My one last thing, I promise, and we'll put, <laughs> we'll put Gen Con to bed for Yeah, real. we've heard this before. <laughs> I got this really interesting little game, uh, Dungeons & Dragons oh, uh, right. adventure game that was only available in Great Britain. comes with, it's definitely, it will be on the truckloads of Goober sometime soon, but it was a game that was only printed in uh, Britain with a several expansions, uh, truckloads of little interesting fantasy figurines and things, but it's definitely sort of a tactical fantasy combat type game. And pretty much if you didn't get it at Gen Con, you probably were never ever going to get it anyplace else because they had what they claim to be the last case in existence. Yeah, not only was not it only sold. printed in Britain, it's out of print now, period. Right. So um, there you have it for me. Uh, I guess my last thing is just to let everybody know that after our four days at Gen Con, we are ju- by just a couple. We were just shy of fifty new games purchased Ouch. between Stephen and I. So, Ouch, I needless to say, the, the list has soared. It has blossomed, <laughs> <laughs> but it just gives us more games to play. It's really a good problem to have, if you ask us. <laughs> we hope that you've enjoyed our Gen Con. Uh, uh, spiel here on the spiel. We certainly have enjoyed bringing it to you. If you have any questions, check us out at thespiel.net and send us some email. That'll be it for this episode of the spiel. So remember, whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win. You, you just, just have, have to play. play.